Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. Since Hamas's deadly attack on Israel earlier this month, a lot has been said about the military and political group, and plenty of people have asked about the degree to which Hamas represents the Palestinian people. Several countries, including the United States and the European Union, have designated Hamas, which has been the de facto authority in Gaza since 2005, a terrorist group. According to a poll conducted by the Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research, 73% of Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank say there is corruption in Hamas and in the Palestinian Authority. The Palestinian Authority controls the occupied West Bank. It's led by Mahmoud Abbas, who has condemned Hamas's violence. Meanwhile, Abbas and the PA have faced criticism for their rule of the occupied West Bank. Last week, following the deadly explosion at a hospital in Gaza, which left hundreds dead, protesters took to the West Bank in defiance of Abbas's government. I asked President Abbas to postpone or to, to cancel his meeting with Biden and to come back. And when Biden will enforce Israel to stop its aggression, he can meet with them. Abbas did cancel his planned meeting with President Joe Biden. Here's what he had to say about it. In light of the calamity that occurred and out of concern for our people, I have decided to cut short my visit and return to my homeland to be with my people in this great ordeal. Palestinians have not voted in a parliamentary election since 2006, and the majority of Palestinians today were not old enough to vote in the elections that brought Hamas to power in Gaza. So how do we get here with this leadership divide? Who do Palestinians want representing them? We also discuss how war and displacement has shaped the lives of Palestinians. I'm David Gurra, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with our guests in just a moment. This message comes from Capital One, presenting sponsor of the 2024 Tiny Desk Contest. Earlier this year, unsigned musicians from around the country submitted their original songs for the 10th annual Tiny Desk Contest. The panel of judges are hard at work picking standout entries, and you can follow along and choose your favorite videos as well. The winner gets to play their very own Tiny Desk Concert, then headline a tour with NPR Music this summer. Want to come along for the ride? Visit tinydeskcontest.npr.org to learn more. Then check out the Venture X card from presenting sponsor Capital One. Earn unlimited 2X miles on everything you buy and turn everyday purchases into extraordinary trips. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Let's get into it. Joining us to discuss is Youssef Munayer. He's head of the Palestine-Israel program and a senior fellow at the Arab Center here in Washington, D.C. The Arab Center is a nonprofit, independent, and nonpartisan research organization. Also with us is Khaled El-Gindi, a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute, a nonpartisan think tank in Washington. And uh, he was an advisor to Palestinian leadership in Ramallah from 2004 to 2009. 
He's the author of the book Blind Spot: America and the Palestinians from Balfour to Trump. And Shireen Cycli is an associate professor of history at the University of California, Santa Barbara. She's also the author of the book Men of Capital: Scarcity and Economy in Mandate Palestine. Thanks to all of you for being here. And Khalid, let me start with you. You've been watching closely the U.S. response to this conflict, and the Biden administration has asked Israel to delay a ground invasion of Gaza to allow for more humanitarian aid into the region to ease hostage negotiations. What updates can you give us on how much aid is getting to Gaza, which has been under bombardment since Israel declared war uh, on Hamas on October the 8th? Yeah, I, I think uh, I think it's impossible to overstate the the severity of the humanitarian catastrophe that's happening right now in Gaza. Um, they have been without uh, power, water, food, fuel for uh, 17, 18 days, mm-hmm. um, a total of 34 trucks of humanitarian supplies have gotten in for a population of 2.2 million. Um, Today, we saw reports that the health sector has collapsed. Uh, 12 hospitals and 30-some medical centers have been forced to shut down for lack of fuel. Uh, So it's an extremely dire situation. And uh, it's, it's, I think, totally unacceptable that, that Israel would be allowed to use mass starvation and denial of basic uh, human needs as a as a weapon of war. Yusuf Bonier, let me turn to you. On Sunday, Israel's military carried out an airstrike on the occupied West Bank city of Jenin. Israel said the target was a mosque Hamas was using as a, quote, terrorist compound. To reiterate what I said a moment ago, the occupied West Bank is controlled, controlled by the Palestinian Authority, not by Hamas. How significant do you see this move as by the Israeli Defense Forces? Well, I would just say that the, first, uh, the the occupied West Bank is not controlled by the Palestinian Authority. It's controlled by the Israeli military uh, occupation, um, which uh, governs the vast majority of decisions that Palestinians are able to to make in their lives within the West Bank, regardless to the the presence of the Palestinian uh, Authority there. Uh, you're right. There has been a airstrike uh, in uh, the West Bank, and there's also been the killing of nearly 100 Palestinians since October 7th in uh, the West Bank, which comes uh, during a year uh, in which the Israeli military was on pace for a record-setting number of killings of Palestinians in the West Bank, uh, not uh, uh, in uh, Gaza. Um, so this is all taking place within the the context of a, of a broader assault on Palestinian life and dignity by an Israeli military occupation uh, everywhere that 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 Palestinians exist within these these occupied territories. Before we get into the the leadership structure and where things stand, Shereen, I want to ask you one last question just about the backdrop to to all of this. You're an historian of the modern Middle East, and I wonder if you could place this moment for us uh, in the arc of of history uh, as you look at the situation that's been unfolding over these last two-plus weeks. Absolutely. Um, First, I'd like to um, mention and really insist on um, the high number of casualties and destruction that we're witnessing um, in Gaza right now as of this morning. Reports from The Guardian and the United Nations put the number of fatalities as exceeding 5,700. Nearly 2,000 of those are children. This is the catastrophe we're witnessing on the ground. 
that catastrophe is one uh, that is continuous in Palestinian history. In fact, in 1948, with the establishment of the State of Israel and the death of contiguous Palestine, Palestinians called their condition the Nakba. It was at that time that a majority of Palestinians, the majority of Palestinians became stateless refugees with a minority remaining in what would become the State of Israel. Many of us have, since 1948, called our condition an ongoing Nakba, an ongoing catastrophe. That is because the system that we have lived under since 1948 is a system of Israeli settler colonialism that has, since 1967, Um, included military occupation of the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem. This moment for many of us is both a, a, a moment of continuity and a moment of rupture. Mm -hmm. It feels like that um, the, the announcements that have come from um, the Israeli cabinet of a new Nakba, the uh, multiple kinds of uh, gestures to Palestinians in Gaza being human animals, quote-unquote, or less than that. The promises for leveling Gaza, the, um, the kinds of explicit ways people are and governments are discussing tr the transfer of Palestinians um, in Gaza to Egypt, for example. This, to us, is a, is a new and unprecedented moment of catastrophe and ethnic cleansing. Khaled, I want to ask you first just about Mahmoud Abbas, the, the leader of the Palestine, Palestine Authority, which controls parts of the West Bank that aren't controlled by Israel. He's been the chair of the Palestine Liberation Organization, or PLO, since 2004. This is an organization made up of multiple political parties that represents Palestinians worldwide. Let me start with just a very basic question, which is, what is the Palestinian Authority? How do you, how do you define it? Uh, the Palestinian Authority is an uh, administrative body uh, that was created by the Oslo Accords in 1993 and, and went into effect in 1994 as a uh, sort of government in waiting for what Palestinians hoped would become a, a future uh, independence uh, state of their own uh, as a result of the, of the Oslo process. Um, the, I think it's important to, to note that the, the, the Palestinian Authority or the, the PA is not the only political body Uh, for the Palestinians. In fact, the main one is uh, the Palestine Liberation Organization uh, that the PLO, which has historically been the, the political address for the Palestinian national movement. And so the, the PA was not supposed to replace the PLO, but was supposed to um, eventually graduate uh, to uh, obviate the need for the PLO as the embodiment of, uh, you know, in the form of a Palestinian state, <clears throat> which, of course, never happened. Yusuf, we have not seen parliamentary elections, as I mentioned, in Gaza or the occupied West Bank since 2006. Okay, give us the, the history here. Why has that been the case? Uh, and what are the prospects? We have, a, we have a message here from Jay. What are the prospects of holding another Palestinian election anytime in the future? Well, I think, you know, when we, when we talk about Palestinian Uh, representative bodies, it's important to keep in mind that the, the Palestinian people are not merely the Palestinians who live in the West Bank and in uh, Gaza and in East Jerusalem, where these uh, elections for the uh, Palestinian Legislative Council have taken place in the past under the sort of umbrella of the Palestinian Authority. Uh, in fact, Palestinians exist in many more places than that and under different 
uh, political entities, either in uh, Israel or outside uh, of uh, uh, historic Palestine and neighboring countries. All of these Palestinians are stakeholders in the national question of what is to happen with with Palestine and the struggle for Palestinian freedom. Um, and one of the key problems that we have is that you know Palestinians have been forced into these uh, fragmented uh, and 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 disjointed political spaces by the Israeli occupation and importantly by U.S. policy as well uh, that prevent them from having legitimate and representative institutions that represent the entirety of the stakeholders involved. Now, this, uh, of course, um, supports Israel's policy of divide and conquer, but it also cuts against any sort of effort to have a legitimate representative of Palestinians that actually could bring some kind of uh, uh, agreement forward or commitment to an agreement forward as the United States says it wants to see uh, when it plays the mediating role. Shireen, what we're talking about what daily life is like for most Palestinians, polling from the Washington Institute from June suggests most Palestinians are looking to their leaders to demand better living conditions, better education, housing, health care. They're not looking to their leaders to demand resistance. Uh, just give us a sense of how much control, day-to-day control, Israel has over the lives of, of Palestinians in, in the Gaza Strip and the occupied West Bank. As we see um, in the in the in these very dark times that we're living in now, Israel has the power to turn off the electricity on the entire Gaza Strip. We know that there is no fuel coming in. We know that there is no water in the Strip. We know, as Khalid Gindi was saying, that the amount of aid that has gone in under this latest. Uh, escalating war, right, which is the the fifth or sixth war on Gaza from Israel in the last 16 years. So I find it really incongruous when we talk about what Palestinians in the Gaza Strip want in from their leaders, because Palestinians in the Gaza Strip have been under siege for over 16 years, a full blockade, right, of, pe- of goods and people and uh, not being able to come in and out of this part of Palestine that we now know as the Gaza Strip. In terms of what is life like in the West Bank, and that daily life is now even becoming even more difficult, that is a reality of separated bantustans, of a very debilitating checkpoint system, um, bypass roads that are Israeli Jewish only, um, and, and, and multiple technologies such as the wall that are separating people from one another. This is why in 2005, a 250 Palestinian civil society organizations called the conditions on the ground apartheid and inspired by uh, the anti-apartheid movement of um, South Africa, they were calling for boycott divestment sanctions. About 15 years, uh, almost a decade later, legacy human rights organization joined that description, uh, joined those civil society organizations in calling the conditions on the ground apartheid. And those include Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, um, Israeli organization B'Tselem. So I guess my invitation to you would just be, you know, how can we talk about the meaningful representation of people under a con- under a regime of apartheid, I think if you ask most Palestinians, um, their their main obstacle to a daily 
life is this Israeli regime of rule. Khaled, with respect to what Shireen's saying uh, about leadership, th- there is this power dynamic, this duality between Hamas and Fatah, Mahmoud Abbas's party. And, and just going back to that polling that I mentioned a moment ago, uh, I wonder uh, how much oxygen that political rivalry uh, is is taking up when you look at leadership of, of Palestinians broadly and how problematical that's been over the last, say, 15, 20 years. Well, with regard to that that particular poll, I, I think you have to look at uh, public opinion trends in general. I think the overwhelming majority of Palestinians uh, w- uh, will say they want to be free. They want to be free of Israeli occupation. They want to, um, uh, you know, live like any other uh, people on earth without being uh, subjected to arbitrary military rule. Um, and uh in times of crisis, you'll see support for resistance go up. You know, when large numbers of Palestinians are dying, naturally people will support resistance, even armed resistance. Uh, and in, and when things um, are uh, looking more hopeful, you'll see uh, support for you know uh, uh, opposition, more opposition to to that kind of resistance. Right now, we're in one of these moments where uh, where there's overwhelming support uh, for any kind of any kind of uh, resistance, um, including armed resistance at this point, just given the, the massive scale of death and destruction um, in, in Gaza. Uh, but I think it's also important to note that Palestinians have tried nonviolent forms of resistance uh, in the past, uh, repeatedly, uh, and it hasn't gotten them anywhere. The, the Great March of Return in Gaza in 2018 was almost entirely Nonviolent, and Israel responded uh, by sniping at the, the protesters who were not armed. Um, there wasn't really an international outcry there. Um, as Shireen said, Palestinians have uh, tried uh, other kinds of nonviolent resistance, like support for boycotts. They are uh, deemed uh, a a form of uh, of uh, quote unquote uh, terrorism mm. uh, by by Israel, and and is inherently anti-Semitic. So. Uh, all avenues for peaceful protest or nonviolent resistance have essentially been closed, including the diplomatic process, uh, which we haven't had any real credible uh, process for uh, 10 or 15 years at least. We're going to take a quick pause here. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Get your quote at Progressive.com and see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. 
In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. Let's get back to the conversation with this message we got from Rodney. And Yusuf, I'll turn to you for this. Rodney asks, I would like an understanding of the actual geography of Palestine communities. Why is there a West Bank and then a Gaza Strip that is disconnected? Could you could you speak to that? It's, it's a basic question, but I think an important one. And and there is this disconnect. There's, there's been efforts at reconciliation between these two political groups. I think back to the, the Mecca Agreement back in 2007. Could you just speak to the challenges, why, why we have this disconnect, and, and how much of a challenge it is having these two discrete geographies? Uh, so uh, the people of Palestine come from the uh, land of, of Palestine, which is that strip of territory today where there is a Israeli state uh, between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, in 1948, during the creation of this Israeli state, the vast majority of the native inhabitants of Palestine Uh, It's Arab Palestinians were forced from their homes uh, and uh, spread throughout the region. Many of them became refugees in the territories that became known as the West Bank and the Gaza Strip uh, after armistice agreements brought an end to the war in 1949. Uh, This means that Palestinians are dispersed across the entirety of the country and also across much of the region. There are uh, today um, about uh, 2 million Palestinian citizens of Israel, 2.2 million Palestinians in uh, Gaza, uh, close to 4 million Palestinians in uh, the West Bank and uh, Jerusalem, of course, um, and uh, many uh, more million Palestinians uh, throughout the region who live in some form of status either as uh, refugees uh, or as residents in um, in those third countries or outside of the region uh, as well. Um, this fragmentation and division Uh, coupled with the military occupation of those territories which followed in 1967 in in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, has completely defined and shaped Palestinian political life and their ability to mobilize um, and and organize and build representative institutions uh, as a a people. Um, So, uh, you know, I think it is, it's um, a product of of that, that history of, of dispersion and oppression, uh, and one that is sort of inescapable in, in terms of the, how much it, it defines what Palestinians are able to do um, and, and what they are actually uh, struggling against. Khalid, we've talked a lot about Hamas itself, and I wonder if you could shed some light on how that organization is is structured, uh, how the group governs itself. I know there are several wings of Hamas, sort of how they work together, the role that they play, uh, particularly between sort of the military and the, the governing branches of, of the party. Uh, well, Hamas, like uh, many uh, Palestinian political factions over the years, has both a, a political wing and a military wing. And uh, the political leadership is um, supposedly uh, in charge of, of the military wing as in you know most uh, most uh, polities um uh, the historically hamas has resisted uh, being involved in uh anything that would legitimize the political process uh, the oslo peace process and so they did not participate for example in the elections in 1996 
Um, and 10 years later, in 2006, they made the decision to contest those elections, um, signaling a desire to shift maybe away from, uh, from armed resistance, uh, not entirely, um, but at least tactically, uh, toward uh, political legitimization, both in the context of broader Palestinian politics and in the uh, international community. Um, and so now, of course, we see a shift where they've essentially forsaken uh, the, the goal of governing uh, and in favor of, uh, uh, of focusing primarily or exclusively on uh, on armed resistance, some violent resistance, and, and so that uh, the pendulum will swing back and forth depending on on what's happening on the ground and the feasibility of uh, uh, of, a, of let's say a diplomatic process. Um, uh, but there's always been this kind of schizophrenia within mm. uh, within the movement between the military and the political wing. It's hard to know who's in charge at any given moment, and it really just depends on uh, on the conditions on the ground. Um, and then you also have kind of adding to that dimension uh, a uh, a not necessarily a split, but let's say competition between <laughs> the leadership inside the Gaza Strip. Uh, where is you know Hamas's base is located, and the leadership in exile, the which is supposedly you know the 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 main political leadership, um, and sometimes, uh, I mean, what we've seen primarily is that it's really Hamas inside leadership that is uh, uh, dictating uh, terms on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, we, there is this constant struggle between the military and and political wing at this point it's clear that the political wing uh, has uh, taken a backseat to to the military wing Shreen, let me turn to you uh, Hamas doesn't recognize Israel as a legitimate state but the the party that Palestinian president Mahmoud Abbas represents does uh, how did the current Palestinian leadership interact with Israel with Israeli officials before this this most recent war I think for um the Palestinian Authority, and I think this is true for um, how most Palestinians understand um, that body um, as as primarily a subcontractor of Israeli um, rule, and this is um, has a large part to do why um, that the, the PA itself is um, a kind of hollowed out version of any type of national representation. Let me, let me have you spell out that um, term. So you say subcontractor of Israeli rule. What do, what do you mean by that exactly? Yeah, I mean that the PA basically acts like a mini cop of the Israeli regime on the streets of the West Bank, that um, essentially it's a handmaiden to Israeli military occupation, um, settler colonialism, and apartheid. And I think, you know, um, we've witnessed this. I mean, as Yusuf was saying, it's been one of the bloodiest years in the West Bank, in large part because um, the kind of extreme right-wing government um, that uh, in Israel, the type of instigation and aiding and abetting of settler violence, um, we saw this um, in the devastation in the village of Hawada, 
has really meant that the emphasis um, of Israeli military rule has been in the West Bank, um, really enforcing this kind of settler terrorism and violence there. And the Palestinian Authority has not functioned as a, you know, representative of what we've, I think we've all been saying, which is the main demand from Palestinian people. And that demand is a demand for liberation. Um, I think in terms of, um, you know, when we're thinking also in terms of um, Hamas, you know, I think it is important for us to remember that Hamas did change its charter in 2017, has specifically indicated its willingness for a long-term truce, um, provided a kind of genuine Palestinian uh, state is established. Um, But ultimately, I I think it's really important for us to really continue to um, insist that Mm. Hamas is not the primary problem for a genuine a future for the Palestinians. And I think here I really want to quote from a colleague of mine, uh, Rabia Ghbari, who has said to us that, you know, if we are going to think about a future for Palestinians, it would be um, three R's, recognition, right of return, and redistribution. And there I want to um, just go back to the question of the West Bank and Gaza and um, just remind everybody that these aren't naturally existing entities. They're actually administrative entities that were created to mark territories that weren't ethnically cleansed by Israel in 1948-1949. And at least half of those in the West Bank and two-thirds of the people in the Gaza Strip are, are refugees from 1948. Mm. Yusuf, let me bring you in here and just have you respond to, to what Shireen was saying there just a moment ago, uh, sort of about the, the role that Israel has on the way that the, the PA governs in, uh, in the West Bank. You know, I think one of the challenges that is becoming clear in, in this conversation is that we we are attempting to apply frameworks that perhaps we are most familiar with maybe here in the United States when we're talking about politics and representation mm. uh, to a completely different reality which Palestinians are living in. We focus on elections and parties and institutions that, you know, dominate the conversations that we have perhaps here in the United States or in other independent, sovereign states. But that's not what exists in Palestine. That's not the uh, political community that Palestinians are uh, and conditions in which Palestinians are existing in. So the, the primary concern for Palestinians as a political goal, and this is something that is borne out in all of the public opinion polling that we have uh, on uh, Palestinian attitudes in the West Bank and Gaza time after time, is that the primary national goals uh, of the public is an end to the occupation, the military occupation of the territories occupied in 1967, uh, and a right of return for refugees to their towns and villages from which they were cleansed in 1948. Mm. The legitimacy of representative politics, regardless to who the actors are, depends on their ability to move the Palestinian public towards those goals. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is this is not this this is not the kind of, you know we can't up, apply a sort of you know two party Republican Democrat sort of framework that we might be accustomed to to a situation where people are under military occupation and their primary goal is seeking freedom. Um, and so I I would encourage us to kind of 
break through the frameworks that we might be accustomed to mm-hmm. and think about the perspective uh, from, from, from that uh, of under military occupation and apartheid. Let's take a quick break here. Still to come, Palestinians in the West Bank have been protesting the leadership of President Mahmoud Abbas. More on what Palestinians want from their leaders in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit bluehost.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to the conversation. And something that's come up a couple of times now is is right of return. And I'd I'd love for you just to uh, explain uh, in more detail what that is and how this factors into the conversation that we're having here uh, about what Palestinians want and expect from, from their leaders. Uh, right. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. But, but first, I just want to build on, uh, on, on points that Yusuf and Shireen made. Please. We, have to, we have to distinguish. There's a difference between governance on the one hand, which is what we've been mainly talking about, and political leadership on the other. Um, we're used to thinking of the two as one and the same. Our elected leaders are, are political leaders who, who, who govern us in one form or another. Um, but that's not the case here, given this context of Israeli um, um, occupation um, and where Palestinian governance has become essentially an extension of the occupation. And this is what it's meant, what is meant by um, the, the Palestinian Authority acting as Israel's security contractor, um, because its primary job has been to sort of pacify Palestinians through jobs and, um, you know, some infrastructure projects and the like, while at the same time uh, ensuring uh, security for for Israeli soldiers and settlers um, and and other Israelis, while sort of losing sight of the bigger picture of when do we go about doing the business of Palestinian, uh, achieving Palestinian freedom. And that's where there's a breakdown. And that's where people, I think, don't don't quite understand, um, you know, what it means for Palestinians to not have a credible leadership, which is a disaster, regardless of of whether we expect them to govern or not. Right now, we have this divided, uh, dysfunctional leadership divided between Hamas and Fatah, but also schizophrenic between the Palestinian Authority and the PLO. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and their institutions have been stagnant and hollowed out. Uh, and so that that's really the crux of, of what a disaster, uh, a lack of, of leadership uh, means, especially in moments of crisis like this, when you need a, a credible leadership and you don't have that. Um, on, on, the, on the question of, uh, of right of return, um, this is the basic uh, Palestinian demand, as, as Shireen and, and Yusuf pointed out, 
the majority of, of Palestinians were displaced, dispossessed from their, uh, their homes uh, after 1948. Um, and the resolution to the refugee problem has always been a, uh, <clears throat> a cornerstone of any diplomatic process. At least it used to be. It's sort of fallen off the radar um, uh, in 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 recent years, where essentially people have have to have, have to have tried to just erase it. You know, if we redefine refugees to not include uh, people who are the descendants of the actual people who left, mm. then the issue will magically go away. But it's it's you know, look at Gaza. Gaza is seventy percent of the population are refugees. It is a it, it is very much uh, a reason for the ongoing instability uh, that we're seeing now, and also a reason why I think we're seeing Israel act with such ferocity uh, in in uh, in its uh, assault on, on Gaza. A lot of that has to do with wanting to make the refugee issue disappear forever. Yusuf, taking your good counsel here about uh, reevaluating or, or scrapping the, the existing framework that we have or our notions of it and, and listening to what Khaled was saying there just, just a moment ago, I want to I pick up on something, and that is we are at this moment where the Palestinians having these stagnant and hollowed-out institutions, as he said, and, and not having credible leadership seems like it would be hugely problematic. And I, again, I think it's a, it's a basic question here, but I'd, I'd love to hear how you're thinking about this. Who is advocating... Uh, for Palestinians, yes, in this war, but on, on, on the global stage at this moment of, of, of real crisis for them and how problematic is it that there, at least to, from my vantage, doesn't seem to be a, a, a single person or a single entity who is uh, able to, to convey uh, what is so important to, to the broader international community. Well, I think, again, when you look at what Palestinians want, um, and again, that is uh, borne out with with uh, tremendous consistency in, in public opinion polls, that is uh, freedom from Israeli military occupation, and basically their rights under international law, um, and their human rights to be guaranteed. Um, this is uh, not being uh, effectively represented by any single political party. Um, but at the same time, we see that there are movements within global civil society and Palestinian civil society um, that, um, as uh, Shireen uh, had mentioned earlier, uh, the call for boycotts, divestments, and sanctions, um, uh, which is a call to global civil society to hold Israel to account for its violations of international law and human rights um, is, I think, uh, by far uh, the effort. I don't want to say a leadership because it's not necessarily a leadership or any single uh, group or individual, um, but is an effort that has, I think, the uh, uh, broadest support among all uh, Palestinian stakeholders. And when we look at Palestinian uh, public opinion polls, there is no single issue uh, that receives the kind of uh, support for an effort for Palestinian uh, rights uh, as the effort to uh, call for boycotts, divestment, and sanctions uh, of uh, uh, Israel to hold it uh, accountable. Uh, this is uh, one that an effort that demands accountability, uh, but also is uh, a form of, of nonviolent resistance at the same time. Upwards of 85% of Palestinians in these opinion polls support this effort. There is no 
uh, other issue that I'm aware of in public opinion polling of Palestinians uh, that receives this kind of unanimous support across um, across the spectrum. And so while there may not be a leadership, there is a clarion call coming from Palestinians, coming from people of conscience uh, within the uh, civil society of Palestine to global civil society, to people of conscience around the world. Um, so I think it's important for us uh, to recognize that the the absence of of leadership, uh, the debilitation of these institutions themselves, a function of oppression and occupation, cannot be an excuse to sit idly by uh, as these human rights abuses and violations of international law continue. Uh, there are ways uh, to do things even in the absence uh, of uh, clear political uh, leadership. Colin, as I look at what Hamas hath wrought uh, with the attacks from, from a couple of weeks ago, I wonder how that has muted the, the conversation that Youssef is, is talking, muted the, the clarion call that, that was perhaps ringing out fairly loudly before. Uh, again, I'm looking for sort of more recent historical context here, but how, how do you see that affecting that, that conversation? Right. And I mean, the, the focus, especially for the 2.2 million people in Gaza, the focus is on just staying alive. Uh, you know, where can I seek shelter and not be bombed? Where can I get well, clean water? Where can I get food uh, and and medicine? Uh, I think that that that's um, in a lot of ways the uh, what the peace process became um, because of this enormous power asymmetry between Israel and the Palestinians. It was sort of warped and distorted into a way of uh, of kind of keeping Palestinians under control um, and distracted from their uh, primary needs uh, of you know, basic freedom and basic uh, basic rights um, and you know if you can if you can create a humanitarian disaster uh, in in the Gaza Strip 16 years of blockade, uh, then people are less focused on on things like a Palestinian state and the right of return and the future of Jerusalem and core political issues, right? If your focus is on subsistence and um, just getting from day to day, uh, then uh, then you lose sight of those things. And that has been, I, I think, uh, uh, very much a part of the Israeli strategy in both the West Bank and Gaza uh, to to make life difficult uh, for for various reasons, but one of which uh, is to uh, is to prevent a, a, a political resolution. It's mm. also the reason why Israel has cultivated this division between the West Bank and Gaza, and and between Hamas and Fatah, and between mm. um, you know within the Palestinian Authority. It's classic, you know, it's a it's the oldest colonial uh, play in the rule book, right? To divide and rule, and and Israel has has played on that precisely to avoid dealing with these very difficult uh, political issues like Palestinian statehood and ending the occupation and, and uh, shared capital in Jerusalem or the right of return for refugees. Shereen, let me pick back up on something that, that Yusuf was saying just a moment ago, and that's sort of how, how this, this issue rings out globally, um, this clarion call that's ringing out globally. We were talking about sort of NGOs and civil society. Um, I wonder sort of beyond the... Again, I'm going back to that 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 framework of political parties, but going going beyond what we've been talking about, what has political organizing around Palestinians looked like, both in the region more broadly and and globally throughout the diaspora? 
Thanks so much for that question. And this has been um, what's really, you know, I think is so crucial to remember, which is while we might talk about the hollowed out or, as Khalid um, said, schizophrenic um, kind of political representative bodies, I think what we need to remember time and again is a long radical tradition of popular movement within Palestinian history beginning in the in the early 20th century, right, at every turn and multiple registers. There was a six-month national boycott in 1936 opposing British colonialism and Zionist settlement. We have a long tradition of this kind of um, mass movement. In 2021, we saw in Sheikh Jarrah the kind of holding ground that resonates with land back movements um, in 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 North America. And so, I think when we talk about the place of Palestine in a global imagination, there are reasons why. Um, there, even though it isn't um, really covered, I think, in the Western media, that people are coming out in mass onto the streets because I think Palestine has represented um, historically and in the present a, a, a really important struggle against colonialism. And, and I think that has been, um, we've seen multiple registers of that, right? It looked and it looked in a it looked a certain way in the 1960s, right, with armed struggle and um, anti-colonialism mm-hmm. and and so on, um, and it has changed over time, right, in, in multiple registers. But what we see time and again is really people insisting on the importance of uh, liberation before we can move forward, right. And here I just want to really remind people again and again, you know. Gaza is not an island. Gaza is part of a a broader peoplehood um, and a place called Palestine, right? And and that history cannot begin in October 7th. Khaled, I want to wrap up here just by asking you about what role you think the the U.S. should be playing here, uh, supporting future Palestinian leaderships or looking at, at, at this issue of leadership among Palestinians. I look at the very carefully tailored statements from President Biden, for instance, former President Obama issued one yesterday as well. How do you see the role of of, of the U.S. Uh, in supporting or uh, elevating Palestinian leadership going forward? Well, tragically, I think the the U.S. role has not been supportive of a unified, coherent, uh, and credible Palestinian leadership. The, to the contrary, they kind of bought into over the years the the Israeli mindset of. You know, let's keep Palestinians divided because between the, quote, good Palestinians uh, in the West Bank and the bad Palestinians in in Gaza. And the idea being that it was somehow magically possible to negotiate with one set of Palestinians while making war on another set of Palestinians. And and that was always problematic Mm -hmm. and was never going to work. And so the first and foremost, I think the U.S. officials should understand that, as Shadeen said, Palestinians are a single people. Um, they, They view attacks on Gaza as an attack on all of them in the same way that all Israelis saw October 7th as a direct attack on them and not just those handful of communities in the South that were directly affected. And so if we can apply the same logic uh, to uh, Palestinians as we do in any other context, that would be uh, a start. 
Um, the, the problem is that U.S. officials have have bought into this exceptionalizing of Palestinians because of the way they exceptionalize Israel, right? They're always, there's always carve-outs for international law, for human rights, for, uh, for, for uh, you know, for anything. Um, and so the Palestinians are always treated differently. Mm. Uh, and so the first thing they should understand is that Palestinians, like all other people, um, uh, need uh, uh, need to live in freedom and and need to have a single coherent credible leadership for any kind of diplomatic process to succeed. Kahlo Gendi is a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute, a nonpartisan think tank in Washington. He was an advisor to Palestinian leadership in Ramallah from 2004 to 2009. Yusuf Munair, senior fellow at the Arab Center and head of their Palestine and Israel program. Shireen Saikali is an associate professor of history at UC Santa Barbara, author of the book Men of Capital, Scarcity and Economy in Mandate Palestine. Today's producer is Arfi Getty. This program comes to you from WAMU, which is part of American University in Washington. It's distributed by NPR. I'm David Gura, and this is 1A. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the NPR Wine Club. NPR Wine Club members have contributed over $1.5 million to helping create a more informed public. B21. Join the charge at nprwineclub.org slash podcast.